Welcome to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio, sponsored by EarthX, the world's largest environmental experience, and also sponsored by Natural Awakenings Magazine. Live your healthiest life on a healthier planet. Now, here's your host, Bernice Butler. Welcome to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio today. We are now nearing the end of our third season, and we are actually more excited than ever to continue to help you explore and understand that unbreakable relationship between your health and the health of the planet. Here we look at the hottest topics related to our environment and its sustainability and how they affect your health and wellness. Here, issues like climate change, plastic pollution, extreme weather events, and others will meet up with everyday impacts like allergies and asthma, digestive issues and gut health, cancers, lung and heart issues, and more. So listen in today as we interview experts for today's show, actually our last show this month, on air quality and transportation. And today we're going to talk about renewable energy and electric vehicles, the state of their impact on the environment. Now, the transition to an environmentally sustainable economy is probably going to take uh, at least a, a generation more. And at the end of the journey, we are not going to emerge with a pristine planet either. The goal here is to minimize the damage that we humans inflict on the planet because the damage will probably never be totally eliminated. So we want to aim for minimizing. There are too many of us and too little planet to eliminate destruction altogether. Uh, So we need to understand our impacts and reduce them as much as possible. Our principal goal should be to mitigate the problems that are global in scale, such as climate change, biodiversity loss, virus transmission, and invasive species. And a critical element of the transition is to reduce our use of fossil fuels. Fossil fuels are expensive and quite environmentally destructive. In the United States, most of our use of fossil fuels is for our transportation. Today, transportation accounts for almost 30 percent of all greenhouse gas emissions in the United States. And the good news, though, is that passenger vehicles in the United States are electrifying at an unprecedented rate. In 2018, one million electric vehicles or EVs were on the road. And a recent uh, studies project that by 2030, which is only eight years from here, approximately 20 million electric vehicles will be deployed across the country. And globally, this number could surpass 250 million electric vehicles in eight years, according to the International Energy Agency. Now, recently, Bloomberg News reported U.S. crosses the electric vehicle tipping point for mass adoption. They state that once 5% of new car sales go fully electric, then everything changes. Again, according to the Bloomberg analysis of the 19 countries that have indeed made the electric vehicle pivot. The same society-altering shift is happening now with electric vehicles that happened not long ago with our smartphones. According to Bloomberg uh, and their analysis of adoption rates around the world, many of us of a certain age can probably recall the first time we heard or held a smartphone. 
These devices were weird and quite expensive, and they were novel enough to draw a circle of people or draw a crowd at parties. And then, less than a decade later, it became not unusual at all to own one. And of course, now everybody has one. The U.S. is the latest country to pass what has become that critical electric vehicle tipping point of 5% of new car sales powered only by electricity. And so this threshold signals the start of mass electric vehicle adoption, the period when technological preferences rapidly flip, almost like overnight, according to the Bloomberg analysis. Now, for the past six months, the U.S. has joined Europe and China collectively, the three largest car markets, in moving beyond that 5% tipping point. So if the United States follows the trend established by 18 countries that have come before us, then a quarter of new car sales could be electric by the end of 2025. And that's like just a few years from now. And that would indeed be a year or two ahead of most major forecasts that are around. So why is 5% so important? Well, most successful technologies, that is electricity, televisions, mobile phones, the Internet, even LED light bulbs, follow kind of this S-shaped adoption curve. Sales move initially at a snail's pace or crawl in the early adopter phase. Then once things go mainstream, then it's, it's a surprising uptick, almost a tsunami Uh, It then feels like it's happening overnight. And of course, with this number of EVs coming online in the coming years, it's crucial that both customers and utilities continue to explore new ways to charge our EVs with renewable energy sources in order to maximize the emissions reduction. So electric vehicle charging can also be an important source of flexible electricity demand to enable use of larger amounts of variable solar and wind energy on our grids. New utility and third-party offerings are emerging already to enable customers to opt for renewable energy to meet their electric vehicle charging needs. But these are not available everywhere. And new programs and solutions must be designed in order to enable customers to align charging to when clean energy sources are available and offer customers savings. The good news, given how divisive our society currently is these days, is that the fossil fuel industry and some of the right wing attack on renewable energy will probably not extend and certainly not stick to electric vehicles. First of all, the world's motor vehicle manufacturers are just as capable, if not more so, as the fossil fuel companies uh, of translating their economic power into political clout, i.e. lobbying power. And auto manufacturers are investing many billions of dollars in electric vehicles. Right around the first of the year and certainly after the new administration took over, we were hearing almost weekly how various car manufacturers were going to go all electric in a few years. They, they, they put their pole in the ground and said, this is when we're going to do it. And they were just coming out one after the other. So as you said, they are investing billions of dollars. And these vehicles are technologically superior to the vehicles that are already around that are currently being powered by internal combustion engines. They need less maintenance, 
and they've already proven that their attractiveness in the marketplace. It's hard to lie about electric vehicles on social media when your neighbor has one parked over in her driveway. And when economies of scale are reached and prices come down as they are beginning to, then we have every reason to believe that electric vehicles will drive gasoline-powered vehicles out of the marketplace. The EV industry has to date focused its attention, though, on continuing to improve the efficiency and reduce the cost of electric vehicles. You probably remember when they first came out, that was the common uh, beating up point about electric vehicles is that they were so uh, expensive that they were cost prohibitive. Uh, but now one that comes to mind is the Ford F-150 electric vehicle. I think it starts at like about 37000 and something, and that's about where all cars start. So, again, they, they've demonstrated that they've definitely come down in cost. However, it's important that that happens, but also we need to build out our public charging infrastructure and the overall growth of the market. So while this is important, industry has probably paid too little attention to the electricity sources used to actually power our electric vehicles. It's a case of electrify first and then worry about the actual electricity it's going to use later. But On the front of how to power our electric vehicles, there's low-hanging fruit that can be seized now. And that's offering some very exciting opportunities uh, that our experts today are, are, are really versed in. It is felt that electric vehicles are or should be the next most dominant class of renewable energy buyers and users. Now, this is a lot, but it's also quite exciting. But here to help us out today is Dr. Alice Grossman with Texas Tech's Texas Transportation Institute and Lori Bird with the World Resources Institute. First, Dr. Alice Grossman is an associate research scientist with the Center for Advancing Research in Transportation Emissions, Energy, and Health, again, at the Texas Transportation Institute at Texas Tech. Her research and project management experience spans various areas of multimodal transportation with a focus on sustainable transportation, accessibility, technology in transportation, vulnerable road user safety, and performance measurement. Alice works within the Health and Sustainability Program at the Texas Transportation Institute, and she leads the Clean Transportation Collaborative. And I keep saying Texas Tech. I have an affinity for Texas Tech, but Alice is actually at Texas A&M, so they will forgive me, I hope. Now, prior to joining uh, the Texas Transportation Institute at Texas A&M, Alice uh, was a fellow in the American uh, Association for the Advancement of Science in Science and Technology. She's also currently a science, technology, and policy fellow with the Inter-American Institute for Global Change, where she contributes to research and outreach initiatives for science diplomacy in the area of climate change impacts on public health across America. Welcome, Alice. Do I now have all of that right? Yeah, that sounds right to me. Thank you, Bernice. (laughs) Thank you so much for being with us today. And our other guest is Lori Bird, and Lori is with the World Resources Institute, and she is director of WRI, the World Resources Institute's U.S. Energy Program, and the Polsky Chair for Renewable Energy. 
In her role, Lori works with utilities, cities, and other large energy users to decarbonize the electric sector and accelerate transportation electrification. Lori and her team work to accelerate renewable energy and electric vehicle deployment to ensure wholesale power markets enable the transition to clean energy and to facilitate innovative customer and utility clean energy solutions. And prior to joining the World Resources Institute, uh, Lori was a principal analyst at the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, who's been on with us before. And she works in uh, grid integration and solar programs. And Lori is a prolific author where she has co-authored over 150 publications on clean energy. And we welcome you here today, Lori. Did I get all of that right? Yes, thank you very much. Thank you so much for being with us. And now we're going to go to break. And after we come back, we will talk to these two smart ladies. We want to give a shout out now to our sponsors. That is Natural Awakenings, Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex Magazine, the Green, Healthy, and Sustainable Living Authority for the DFW Metroplex and North Texas communities. Print issues of Natural Awakenings can be found in all Whole Foods markets, natural grocers, central markets, sunflower shops, and many, many other locations, as well as available free for download online at nadallas.com. Check them out. Our other sponsor is North Haven Gardens, serving the Metroplex since 19. 51, the most respected horticultural establishment in North Texas, offering gardening and plant education, concierge services, DIY classes, gifts, and more. Check them out at nhg.com. Our other sponsor is Lynn Dental Care. Practicing dentistry for over 38 years with a holistic approach looking at the whole body. Specializing in periodontics, Dr. Lynn is board certified by the International Academy of Oral Medicine and Toxicology. Check them out at lindentalcare.com. And our other sponsor is the Weston A. Price Foundation, where ancestral wisdom meets modern science on food, farming, and the healing arts. The Weston A. Price Foundation is a nutrition foundation teaching people about healthy foods of the past and how they can incorporate those into their lives today. The foundation educates people about why grass-based and other foods are better quality and then helps them find those foods. With its current 50% pledge campaign, the foundation encourages people to purchase 50% of their food from local farms and artisan. As well, the foundation is holding their annual conference in October in Knoxville, Tennessee, where they will introduce the public as well as farmers and others in this industry to in-depth research and experts. Check them out at WestonAPrice.org. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio today, to today's show on air quality and transportation, focusing in on renewable energy and electric vehicles. We're looking at the state of their impact on the environment. And we are back with our guest, Dr. Alice Grossman, who is with the Texas Transportation Institute at Texas A&M University, and Lori Bird, who is with the World Resources Institute. Again, ladies, thank you so much for taking time from your very busy schedules to join us today. So I want to start out, Alice, if you will help us understand why we must 
address how we transport goods and people in our world in order to impact our air quality. Talk to us about that before we actually get into the meat and potatoes of this very critical issue of renewable energy and electric vehicles. Absolutely. Well, as you mentioned in the introduction, Bernice, Uh, The transportation sector is now the largest sector contributing to greenhouse gases in the U.S., and we also have other types of pollutants coming from vehicles, uh, not only tailpipe emissions. So when we're thinking about transportation electrification, uh, we have to remember that air quality considerations, there's also particulate matter uh, coming off from brake and tire wear. So these are all things we have to be thinking about in terms of how the transportation sector has an impact on the air that we breathe every day, as well as on longer-term impacts like climate change and how that has an effect on our environment and the safety and public health issues that we're living with. Also, I think one of the important things to think about here is that the impact of air quality uh, is not distributed equally. So if you think about how our urban, suburban, even rural areas have been built up over time, and you look at how we've designed our highway networks, um, what different kinds of communities are maybe closer to ports or multimodal facilities where we have more of those heavy-duty vehicles that have even more extreme emissions coming out of both the tailpipe and that brake and tire wear. Um, A lot of those are lower-income communities and communities of color, communities that have been historically disadvantaged, maybe even cut off by highways that have been built, and they're the ones who are really seeing the most impact of this poor air quality. And there are impacts that we can see through public health data, like uh, higher rates of asthma, especially among children in areas that have more of those mobile emissions uh, around. So it's really a a consideration for overall, for everybody's public health, for the long-term health of our planet and how our health is impacted by that. But then also thinking about these equity considerations and the disparate impacts. But beyond equity considerations, as I tell people, it's coming for all of us because air does not stop at the zip code line. Air does not stop at the neighborhood block. And while many of the low income and minority communities are built like right next to or right on top of or even below uh, many of the highest polluting facilities, that same air pollution that they experience is also wafting off to all the surrounding areas. And, And I like to point people to something that we all know about as proof of this. And that's the Saharan Red dust that all of us see from time to time and that we hear about on the uh, evening or the morning news. They tell us it's coming and within a few hours we can look up and see the red haze on the sun. So it, it increasingly it's affecting all of us. Just as we see even with COVID how interconnected our world is. And even beyond that, the vulnerable population that lives right on top of these facilities, they are our essential workers. And as we saw with COVID, they don't call them essential for no reason. We can't do it do without them. But you mentioned something, um, Alice, that I want to go back because I had not heard it before, and that you mentioned the particulate matter and the pollution that comes from our vehicles, our transport, by way of, I think you said, braking and tires. Y'all want to talk about that. I've not heard, it it makes sense, but I've not heard people mention that before. If you think about the physics um, behind your your vehicle, you know, rolling down the street, you've got friction happening there between the tires and the pavement and the brake pads and the wheels. 
And so what you end up getting is this very fine particulate matter basically being emitted from that wear and tear on the brakes and, and tires. Indeed. Is there any sense of the percentage or how much uh, pollution or particulate matter we're, we're getting from there? I know the bulk of it is coming out of that tailpipe, but like I said, that's very interesting. That's just adding to it. Yeah, I'm sure I could not tell you the exact um, percentages or numbers right now, but that is something that I, I can look up. We can circle back. Uh, maybe Laurie has, has some numbers up her sleeve. <laughs> <laughs> but one thing to think about is also the heavier the vehicle. So, again, if we're thinking about heavy-duty trucks or even the fact that electric vehicles are slightly heavier than internal combustion vehicles, again, the physics of it, the more mass you have, the more pollution you're get of that type of pollution that you're going to get. Lori, now in your work, you work with large energy users to decarbonize the energy section. So h- how do we do this? How is it going and what progress are we making? Yeah, we're making a lot of progress. I think it's been pretty exciting. So we work with cities and um, local governments a lot to help them meet their clean energy goals. There's more than 200 cities that have now set targets to transition to 100% clean energy. So we've been helping them figure out how to do that. And, you know, one exciting announcement was City of Chicago just recently announced that they're purchasing 100% renewable energy for their electricity use. And they just announced that. And we've been working with them on that. So very excited to see that. And there's a number of other cities that are doing the same kind of thing. We also work with large corporates who've been driving a lot of renewables like Google and Microsoft and Apple and a lot of the large tech companies, Walmart and many others, right, who are uh, have set goals to um, for renewable energy, to, to climate goals, and then um, purchasing goals for renewable energy. And they've been making a lot of progress and bringing on a lot of capacity. They're large energy users, and so they're bringing on a lot of renewables. So we've been doing supporting them in in their path forward. There, like for the cities, we'll help them think through how to do solar on their city-owned facilities or community-wide, you know, larger-scale solar projects within the community or even utility-scale renewable projects, wind or solar, other things. You know, when I was doing the introduction, I I guess I impressed myself when I was talking about that (laughs) that, uh, adoption about how in the early days, the early adopters, it creeps along at a snail's pace and it crawls, but then there's a point in time. A magical point in time. Nobody ever knows when it is when things just flip. Where are we maybe on that curve with cities and large companies, these big institutional things with being adopting renewable energy? Where might we be on that curve? Are you beginning to see the pace pick up? Are you beginning to see it move further up that curve? Yeah, we've seen just the magnitude of the purchases from some of these large companies has accelerated um, and I'd say within, you know, in the last five years, we've seen very, very large purchases from many of these companies that are driving a lot of the, the renewable energy that's deployed in the whole country. So they're, they're, they represent a significant part of that today. So we've seen this, you know, just this transition to a lot of interest in, in addressing climate change, taking action, using clean energy for their own needs, and really a lot of action. And some of what's helped there is for the cost reduction, right? The cost of wind and solar has come down dramatically, and and it can be very cost-effective. And sometimes companies or cities or others can be saving money when they're doing that. Is there any way we could say or estimate the number of people 
who live in those cities who've adopted renewable energy. Say, like, if you took Chicago and many other cities, you can say, oh, we've got cities that represent 100 million, 200 million people now who've adopted clean energy. Do we have any stats like that or estimates? Well, we are tracking. We have a a renewable energy action tracker where we um, are tracking all the progress by cities. So we're tracking how much renewable energy they're purchasing. And we have that available online on our City Renewables website. Good. Um, That's heartening. Uh, And we have just two minutes before we go to to break. But briefly, Lori, we'll start, and you don't have to end it, but start the conversation. Where do electric vehicles fit within these goals? And what is the intersection of electric vehicles and renewable energy. Yeah, so many of the cities and companies also have goals to transition to electric vehicles, and they relate because uh, if as they're electrifying their vehicle fleets and things like that, they're going to be using more um, electricity. And so it also increases the amount of renewable energy that they want to be supplying for those vehicles. But I think there's a couple of other things that are really important about bundling those two together, that it's worth noting that as we transition to clean energy and clean vehicles, the vehicles can actually help us get there as long as we manage that well, right? So many of them are trying to figure out ways to manage when they charge the electric vehicles to help drive clean energy. Okay, and I think I'd read a little bit about that. There, there's a lot that can be done within that whole process. So it has to be done intentionally so that we don't end up where we often do in society and in our lives with unintended consequences. We will come back to Lori on the other side of the break uh, to tell us more about this intersection of EVs and renewable energy. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio, to today's show on air quality and transportation with our focus on renewable energy and electric vehicles. We're looking at the state of their impact on the environment. And we are back with Dr. Alice Grossman from the Texas Transportation Institute at Texas A&M University and Lori Bird with the World Resources Institute. And they are already making us a lot smarter about all of this. Before the break, Lori was, was talking to us about where electric vehicles fit into this goal that we're seeing really speed up of a lot of cities and large corporations sticking a, a flag in the ground and and making their renewable energy commitments and and also looking at the intersection of electric vehicles and renewable energy. Laura, you want to continue to tell us about that? Yeah, I was just going to say a couple more things. One, that it's possible to to pair solar energy. You can install solar energy on site um, with the electric vehicles and pair those together. Um, But I think one of the important things is is also just when you charge the vehicles, vehicles can sit idle 90% of the time, right? So they're Um, You know, you use them when needed, but they're often sitting around. And so there's flexibility often when those can be charged. And it can be helpful to charge them overnight. There's a lot of wind energy that can be available. um, And it can help, you know, utilize that wind energy when it is there and otherwise might be difficult to use. Or, for instance, in California, there's a lot of solar energy on the system and they have a lot of it available in the middle of the day. And so, you know, you can charge your electric vehicle at work and utilize that solar energy when it's available. So it's important, I think, as we roll this out to be thinking about that and to be 
um, aware of, you know, how we can help transition the grid and um, do this cost effectively and the healthiest way for the planet, too, in terms of reducing emissions. And Alice, you want to weigh in on that, too? Yeah, I think just to continue Lori's point, um, when we think about we need to do a lot more thinking about how we're combining what we know about the energy grid with what we know about transportation demand and human behavior in the transportation sector. So there's, okay, what, yeah, what type of energy is available at what time to make sure that we can get the highest impact, um, but also how the grid is being used. So if you look at peaks on the use of energy generally, right, uh, when people get home from work or when their kids get home from school between like 3 p.m. and 8 p.m., there's a lot heavier pull. People are cooking, people have their lights on, heating, cooling, whatever. So maybe those aren't going to be the best times to be charging our vehicles because there's no matter what kind of energy is coming in, there's already that heavier pull coming in. So when there's extra capacity, then we can be thinking about how and when to charge our vehicles. So figuring out how we incentivize that, you know, what the policies are, how we plan for it, that goes back to the infrastructure. Where are we putting that infrastructure? What types? Is it level one, level two, level three charging? What's the pull going to be? How are we pricing it? There's all sorts of different infrastructure planning and policy decisions that can go into really um, making the most out of out of these opportunities. Yeah, I agree with all that. And there's a couple of things that you all have just talked about that I want to dig deeper into and make sure that we understand. And that is the level, you mentioned level one, level two, level three charging. We want to talk about what is that. (laughs) And then I want to talk about uh, the actual cost of charging an electric vehicle. So (laughs) let's start with you, Lori, though. Uh, Let's start with you in terms of cost. How much does it cost to charge an electric vehicle on the on the average or to give it a full charge to so it's like we look at filling up our tank? Right. I mean, the the problem with, you know, making a generalization about this is that electricity costs vary a lot across the country um, and gas prices can also vary in, in localities. So it's, it cannot, it can be different in different areas. But, you know, for instance, I've had an electric vehicle for um, a number of years and I've calculated it to be even when lo- gas prices were lower, it was about half the cost of powering my, of using a, um, a gas vehicle. So, you know, there are other regions of the country with higher electricity costs, but typically it is less expensive to, to charge um, electric vehicles. I don't know if Alice wants to weigh in on that. Yeah, um, and I, well. I want us to but, talk about it in a way that ordinary people in their everyday lives can understand it. And that's what they're, they're look, you know, I think they understand, like you said, half, half the cost. But, for example, if I go over um, an, at my Walgreens around the corner, there's a, there's a charger. And, and so how much is it to charge that? Uh, your your car there for, for various is it does it go by the length of time or what? Sure, I think usually the the cost is um, you do per kilowatt hour, so it's the you know the energy coming coming in. So it's it's more about the energy pull um, than the exact time. And again, that'll depend on sort of what what that level of charging is. And as Laura said, it's really going to depend where you are and how the pricing schemes work. You know, you look at at Tesla, for example, um, had this incentives for, oh, yeah, well, Tesla drivers aren't really going to have to pay for their, you know, high kilowatt per hour um, pull to charge just because they wanted to be able to incentivize people to be buying that kind of vehicle. 
Um, but now we see a shift away from that, and we've got more of the, these other types of vehicles on the road and the stand, standard chargers, and we have public sector putting in chargers. We have private sector putting in chargers. We have models where we see the public sector working on an, a charging network that in five years is probably going to transition over to the private sector. But what we do know, as Laurie said, is if you look at that full life cycle cost of the vehicle, pretty much how it shakes out no matter where you are, no matter what type of vehicle it is, with the exception of some of those really, really heavy duty like Hummer EVs, I think um, you're going to see you're going to see a cheaper, a, a less expensive lifetime cost of your vehicle with an EV than with an internal combustion uh, vehicle. You know what we see in the, in the utilities is a very different level of, of change in pricing than we see for like gasoline and diesel prices. Um, so in terms of being able to plan for that and budget it out also, it's a little more reliable. I was just going to add too that, um, you know, the cost of doing fast charging, which was level three charging you mentioned before, mm-hmm. level one is just using a, a standard plug in your home. Level two is, um, is a faster charger. You can also install those at your home. Um, and then level three is fast charging that can be very rapid. And, you know, it is more expensive typically to do the fast charging, but if you are on a road trip and you need to, to charge your vehicle quickly, um, you, you'll, you can pay a little bit higher cost there um, to do that. But it's, it can be very economic to charge your vehicle at home, which most people, you know, most of trips are typically uh, in a local area. And so many people are charging the, the, ma- the vast majority of their you know, the vast majority of their charging is done at home. Uh, Another at home. myth that I've heard slung around is, or question ask, and, and that is how much does it make your home utility bill go up by owning and charging your electric vehicle? You know, I've seen some modest increase, but I, I may not drive as much as some people do. So it really depends on what your driving patterns are mm-hmm. um, and how many miles you're putting on your vehicle, what what that's going to translate to. Uh, but it's a trade-off, right? I mean, you're already, if you're, if you're driving a, a vehicle, it's just shifting the cost from gasoline purchases to your electric bill. And as we said, it's likely going to be less expensive there. So overall, likely to be a, a reduction. I'll bet it probably doesn't make that electric meter go around as fast as, say, an electric heater in the winter. <laughs> that's a guzzler. As long as we're talking about home charging, which, as Laurie said, is just, you know, one option that some different um, EV users have. But there, there's advantages to, to having an electric vehicle when we think about, when we think beyond the grid-to-vehicle connection, So we've been talking a lot so far about that energy coming in through the grid and then going into the electric vehicle. Um, But something that we've also been thinking about, especially uh, in the times of climate change and increased extreme weather events, whether it's extreme heat or a storm coming in, um, is that resiliency element. So if we can think of those electric vehicles as, as batteries, little generators, that we've got now sort of all around the community. So in the electricity grid concept, you might think of that as kind of like this microgrid. So you're less dependent on very specific point sources coming in. And if you can get that vehicle to grid technology in, which we're working on, you know, maybe you can, if your power's out, but you've got your EV in the garage, you can keep your refrigerator running. You can put your fans going. 
So there's a lot of other elements to think about, too, um, besides just what that pull off the grid is in terms of a resilience. Indeed. Yeah. It's bringing it to the point where people can then understand that when you talk about the grid. We're going to go to break and we'll be right back on the other side to talk so much more about this very interesting subject. We want to give a shout out now to our sponsors. That is Natural Awakenings, Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex Magazine, The Green, Healthy and Sustainable Living Authority for the DFW Metroplex and North Texas communities. Print issues of Natural Awakenings can be found in all Whole Foods markets, natural grocers, central markets, sunflower shops, and many, many other locations, as well as available free for download online at nadallas.com. Check them out. Our other sponsor is North Haven Gardens, serving the Metroplex since 1951, the most respected horticultural establishment in North Texas, offering gardening and plant education, concierge services, DIY classes, gifts, and more. Check them out at NHG.com. Our other sponsor is Lynn Dental Care, practicing dentistry for over 38 years with a holistic approach looking at the whole body. Specializing in periodontics, Dr. Lynn is board certified by the International Academy of Oral Medicine and Toxicology. Check them out at LynnDentalCare.com. And our other sponsor is the Weston A. Price Foundation where ancestral wisdom meets modern science on food, farming, and the healing arts. The Weston A. Price Foundation is a nutrition foundation teaching people about healthy foods of the past and how they can incorporate those into their lives today. The foundation educates people about why grass based and other foods are better quality and helps them find those foods. And with their current 50% pledge campaign, the foundation encourages people to purchase 50% of their foods from local farms and artisans. And the foundation is having their annual conference mid-October in Knoxville, Tennessee, where they will present to farmers, other interested persons, as well as consumers, in-depth, cutting-edge research and information on the ancestral wisdom of eating. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio, to today's show on air quality and transportation. And we're looking at renewable energy and electric vehicles, the state of their impact on the environment. And we're looking at this with Alice Grossman with the Texas Transportation Institute at Texas A&M University and with Lori Bird with the World Resources Institute. And they really are making us smarter. So thank you, ladies, for, for being with us. I wanted to ask, though, to Alice, what is the health impact cost or an estimate of the health impact cost? And how does moving to renewable energy and electric vehicles save society some of those public health costs? think about those costs. Um, I mean, first of all, there's the quality of life cost. When you think about people living with chronic conditions, maybe heart conditions, maybe respiratory conditions, maybe, you know, physical disabilities from crashes, which is also a public health concern from the transportation system, whatever it is, obviously those, those quality of life considerations. Um, but then there's also the economic cost of people having to go to those healthcare facilities, and that's time taken out of a work day or a school day. 
Um, and then there's the cost that we're paying for those that health care. And if you think about the long-term costs of treating a respiratory illness versus the cost of preventing it from the beginning, um, that's an economic cost that individuals are taking, but also as society that, you know, we're paying for a lot of these systems through our own public systems that we're also incurring as a society. So I think there's a lot of, a lot of ways to look at it, um, but none of them really come out as being worthwhile to be breathing in all of the pollution from the transportation sector. Are there any estimates out there that help to inform us about the use of electric vehicles? For example, if society goes totally to electric vehicles, it may save X amount in public health cost or anything like that out there. You know, I imagine that there is. Somewhere. Huh? <laughs> um, yeah, doing those models when we're looking at the adoption of EVs and the air quality impacts of that, we could definitely put some economic numbers on that. And actually, a colleague of mine at, at Texas A&M Transportation Institute recently published a report on economic impacts. So I, I'd recommend listeners, you know, putting that into their Google search bar and uh, checking out some of those numbers. But it would really be tying the emissions savings um, to the impact of overall pollution on the public health sector. And, and we can certainly... Uh, Laura, you want to weigh in on that? Yeah, I just wanted to mention that we have a, an electric school bus initiative where we're working with school districts across the country to electrify their bus fleets. Um, it's a large project that we're working on. And, you know, there's a lot of impacts there uh, for, for students and young people from riding buses for so long. And low-income students from low-income families um, are more likely to be riding these buses, and um, students with disabilities ride them longer, and um, there are asthma uh, impacts. Diesel is a known carcinogen. And I, I want to say also that there's been some evidence that uh, students do better on tests and they have better um, cognitive abilities um, if they're not exposed to um, these diesel emissions. So I there can is imagine. There's evidence there, too, that, you know, we're harming our young people by having them sit on diesel buses that are, you know, they don't smell good and they're on there for a long time and they're breathing in those fumes. And, you know, it can be an hour that they can be on the bus each way. Indeed. Uh, I think it's a critical piece to think about with electric vehicles is that you're not getting those tailpipe emissions. So, you know, usually the problem is the concentration of the pollution in cities or urban areas or in traffic jams and things like that, where you get these concentrations of a lot of vehicles there. Um, and that's when people are breathing things in. And, you know, when you're removing those tailpipe emissions, it's, it's really critical to helping to, to address some of those health effects. Indeed. Yeah, and I want to mm-hmm. point out one other type of um, sort of emission that we haven't really touched on. And I know, Bernice, you were aiming to focus on air quality mm-hmm. here, but I think, you know, tied into having these electric vehicles, especially in urban settings, and I think it's when they're going, maybe it's under about 30 miles per hour, is the noise pollution which also has an impact on public health. And so people who live, you know, really near corridors that have a lot of traffic going by, sleep quality can be impacted by that noise. And while electric vehicles do have minimum noise standards to make sure that people with low vision are able to navigate our roadways still, those likely aren't reaching the levels that we have from um, the vehicles, the internal combustion vehicles, especially at low speeds in urban corridors. And Alice, I've seen you use the term sustainable transportation and, and clean transportation. What do you mean when you say sustainable transportation? Oh, there's lots of options. And, you know, we started this conversation talking about the inputs to the grid 
And if we're not cleaning up that grid, then how sustainable is electric vehicles even, right? So it's thinking about that full life cycle and the emissions. Um, and you, when you really do the numbers, a lot of that comes down to also, if we want to meet those goals that you and Laurie were discussing at the very beginning of the hour about, um, you know, what are these, uh, the big picture energy and emissions goals by 2030, by 2050, by 2025, we're not going to get that through just electrification. So thinking about those really sustainable modes like walking, like biking, like collective transportation on public transit or carpooling, that's where we see huge savings. And sustainable transportation isn't just electrifying our vehicles. It's thinking about the whole ecosystem and how the transportation network and the land use come together to allow for those other sustainable modes that have other public health benefits. You know, getting out there and being active and walking and bicycling has even further benefits. Um, than just taking those emissions off the road as well. Thank you for helping us understand that, because that is very broad, goes all the way back to the development industry, how we develop our neighborhoods, how we develop our, our new subdivisions. You know, I know there's a big push toward livable, walkable communities where you don't need cars and no, there's no place for cars. But I just wanted to get that out, that that is what we're talking about when we talk about sustainable transportation. Uh, Lori, I wanted to ask you, though, is what are some of the most effective ways you all see of actually accelerating transportation electrification? And what are some of the emerging trends? Is there anything out there that we see or we think that will just really revolutionize things that will make that tsunami happen that we talked about well, earlier? Well, I, I want to point out that the new in, Inflation Reduction Act that was just passed by Congress and signed by the president does have incentives for electric vehicles um, and, you know, to, to accelerate the transition. The infrastructure bill earlier um, passed has a lot of funding, billions of dollars for deploying EV charging infrastructure. So this is critical. It's critical timing. We're going to make a lot of progress in the next few years um, in this marketplace because of all these funds that are now available. And I'll say from a homeowner, there's incentives for doing the electric vehicle, upgrading your electric panel and buying solar energy. So you can do all of those things at so the same time. I want to dig into that just a minute, and we only have a couple of minutes to go. Because, again, our, our show is all about ordinary people in their everyday lives. And and I've heard you say and many others that keep saying it's, it's going to revolutionize things with the Inflation Reduction Action. So what do you think perhaps the most hard-hitting or relevant to ordinary people in their everyday lives, things that ways and things that act, that bill, can help them toward electrification? There's electric vehicle tax credits for um, residents. How much? So they can actually $7,500, and then there's $4,000 tax credit for purchasing a used EV. There are some restrictions on those in that they have to have some domestic content requirements, and uh, the critical minerals and the batteries have to come from uh, either the U.S. or countries with free trade acts with us. So... We're not sure how many vehicles are going to qualify for that in the coming years, so it might take a couple of years for some of those. those so it's seventy five hundred for a new a new EV, four thousand for a used EV. What are yeah. some other ways that consumers can can uh, fairly uh, soon benefit? There's a four thousand dollar rebate for home electrical upgrades. So if you need to, if you want to charge your EV at home and put in a level two charger that you can you can do panel upgrades um, with that rebate as well. And then there's a 30% investment tax credit for residents for um, doing solar energy. 
So it's it's really nice to be able to do all of those things. Indeed. It, it, it does sound like, again, that's what they call kitchen table, but I like to call it pocketbook. It can make a real difference once it's out there and people begin to, to understand it. Thank you. Sure. We're going to need to wrap it up because we are pretty much out of time. And it's like I, I will have to continue this conversation uh, sometime in the in, in the near future, because, as we said, we passed that tipping point. And so I think it's really in, in, important that people understand what's available and the benefits to them. We have been made smarter today by Dr. Alice Grossman with the Center for Advancing Research Transportation at the Texas Transportation Institute at Texas A&M University and with Lori Bird with the World Resources Institute, and they have been a friend to this show. We've had them on before. They do wonderful work. We thank you, ladies, for helping us out today. Thank you. And thank you, listeners, for listening in today to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio. The conversation starts here, but our goal is for it to continue in your home, in your social circles, your workplaces, at the water cooler, and in the grocery checkout line so that we can all work together to realize that healthy living is simply not possible without a healthy planet. Our culture is a result of a trillion tiny acts taken by billions of people every day, like yourselves. And each of those tiny acts can seem insignificant, but all of them add up one way or the other to the change that we each live through. This is your host, Bernice Butler. Thank you for listening today. And join us again next week for more Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio as we begin the month of September talking about environmental justice. Thank you. Thank you.